This is Sirius Sita, Episode 8, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome to Sirius Sita, Episode 8. This is the podcast for serious Muslims who want to learn about the life history of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So, if you are interested in learning more about the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and Islamic history in general, then guess what? You've come to the right place. Let's talk about what we're going to study in today's episode. In today's episode of Sirius Sira, we will study the following topics: the history and life of Jafar ibn Abi Talib. The persecution of the Muslims as of the Muslims as it intensified in Mecca. The Quraysh as they began a campaign of mockery against Prophet Muhammad Darun Al-Qam, the first meeting place of the Muslims. The conversion of Umar ibn al-Khattab. The benefit of good Muslim leaders, and how the Quraysh began a boycott against the Prophet's family. All right, brothers and sisters, here we go with Sirius Sira, episode eight. Having said that, also the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible for their brothers because in the Hadi Ummatakum, Ummatan Wahida, Wa'ana Rabukum Fa'abudun, this Ummat of yours is one Ummah, and I am your Lord, so worship me. So the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made a bond of brotherhood between these Muslims, the blacks and the whites and the Arabs and the, the non-Arabs and the Persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor. They were one Ummah and they were a magnificent We'll try that again. Alhamd Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, Nahmadahu wa Nasta'inu wa Nasta'afiru wa Nu'minu bihi wa Natawakunu alayhi wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad. So I started talking without having the video up and now it's up so we can begin now. Okay. All right, last time we left at um, the migration to Medina, so migration to Abyssinia and the a miscommunication that the people of Quraysh had accepted Islam because of the event where they prostrated upon the revelation of Surah Al-Najm. And the word got out that they had accepted Islam, and eventually rumor got back to the people of Abyssinia that people of Quraysh had accepted Islam. So they came back to Mecca and found out that things were not as they had been told, and in fact, it had actually become worse. The persecution in in Mecca against the Muslims became even worse after the migration to Medina, migration to Abyssinia. All right, so uh, some of the people who had migrated the first time, they stayed in Mecca, did not go back, but the vast majority of them went back to Abyssinia along with a few, with uh, even more of the companions from Mecca went back. Uh, Jafar ibn Abi Talib, the son of Abi Talib and the brother of Ali ibn Abi Talib, he actually wound up, wound up staying in Abyssinia for 15 years and didn't come back to join the Muslims until well after the uh, Hijrah to Medina and after even after the Battle of, of uh, Uhud. He came back, I believe, 
the Battle of Hunain, I believe. I gotta look it up again. Not Battle of Hunain. The one before the one before the Battle of, of the the war just after the the battle just after the um the Treaty of Hudabia. But we'll, that's for the next session anyway. But he, he, the point is he stayed in Abyssinia for a long time, uh, for 15 years actually, before he came back to and joined the Prophet in Medina. <clears throat> but as I mentioned, uh, after, the, after the migration to Abyssinia and the miscommunication, the persecution against the Muslims got even worse for those in in Mecca, we're going to talk. We're going we're going down to the sixth and seventh year of the message of Islam. So now we're in this. We're coming into the sixth year now. The people are people know that there is this small group of, of radicals, and probably not a good word to use for Muslims these days. But from the Qurayshi perspective, from the perspective of the polytheists or the pagans of the time, they were radicals in the fact that they were upsetting the social order of their time. And so they began to persecute the Muslims even more, and they used every single means they could to stop them. For instance, Abu Jal, he himself tried to actually kill Prophet Muhammad on at least one occasion. He promised his friends that he was going to take a stone and drop it on Prophet Muhammad's head while he was praying or making sajda at the Kaaba. Uh, when Abu Jal went forward to do this, Angel Jibril came to him, but it came to him in the form of... Um, some people, some say it was a form of a, of a monstrous camel with teeth, with canines like a wolf, and basically scared the mess out of Abu Jal, and he ran away before he could do that. And when Prophet Muhammad heard about it, he said he confirmed that was Jibril and that he would have killed him, Abu Jal, that is, if he had tried to go through with his plan to harm the Messenger of Allah. Also, the um, another another pagan named Uqba ibn Mu'ayt. While once again the Prophet Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad was praying at the Kaaba, he took a piece of cloth and wrapped it around his neck and began to strangle him. And while he was strangling, he was also hitting the Messenger of Allah in his face and hitting and you know holding him and hitting him in the face while he was praying. And he kept doing this until Abu Bakr came and ran up to him and stopped him and said, "You're going to hurt someone, harm someone, kill someone simply because they're worshiping Allah." And he stopped him from that. And this shows that. You know, even Prophet Muhammad wasn't safe from it. And even some of the major companions began to, or the ones who had, you know, powerful families or stronger families who had clans to protect them began to feel some of the brunt. They began to feel the brunt from their own family. Their own families began to harm them. Abu Bakr himself, he was attacked by his own family, and his mother became very upset with him before accepting Islam. Another companion named Mu'adh ibn Jabal, who was who was actually a very wealthy, he's actually a fairly wealthy companion. He came from a, I'm sorry, Musab ibn Omar, Musab ibn Omer, who was a, he was from a, a wealthy family, but his family cast him out and his mother cut him off. And so he had no access to wealth. So he went from being a very wealthy young man in Mecca to being one of the poorest people of all. And he wound up, he wound up being, I believe, uh, martyred in the Battle of Uhud after the migration to Medina. And when he was martyred, he was so poor he did not. He they didn't even have a um, a cloth to cover him completely. The shroud that, that he had, the only piece of item that he had to himself, was a shroud that but it was too small to cover his entire body. So when they tried to cover his feet, his head was exposed. They tried to cover his head, his feet was exposed. And so they eventually just covered his head 
uh, with a shroud and used grass to cover his feet. And that's how he was buried after he was killed at Battle, Battle of Ahud. There are other ways that um, Uthman ibn Affan, his uncle, and Uthman ibn Affan was from one of the more powerful tribes. He was from the tribe of the Umayyad clan, not tribe. They're all from the same clan, Quraysh. But he was from the Umayyad clan, which was a fairly powerful clan at that time. But even his clan turned against him, and his uncle wrapped him up in a, in a straw mat and set fire to the mat in an attempt to, you know, to try to kill him. But so even the power, the more the stronger companions were not safe from 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 these harming. We also already spoke about the weaker companions like Bilal and Ahmad ibn Yasir, whose family was killed uh, because they accepted Islam. But another a person, a, a free slave named Afla, he was tied to the back of a of a camel or a donkey and dragged through the streets of Mecca uh, for accepting Islam. After the numerous attempts to kill Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, Abu Talib, he organized his family, uh, Banu Hashim, his, his clan Banu Hashim, and Banu Muttalib, which was a broader clan, which included Banu Hashim and others. He organized them to become more diligent in protecting Prophet Muhammad Wasallam because there had been too many attempts in his life, too many people were attacking him, and so he organized his family to become more, more diligent in protecting him. So they were willing to protect him, but you know they did not accept his his faith. Only two of his uncles who accepted who accepted Islam were Hamza, and we'll talk about him in a few minutes, and Abbas. But his other uncles, including Abu Talib himself and Abu Lahab, they did not accept Islam. But the people who the people of Banu Hashim who protected Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, they did so, you know, for family relations. They didn't do so because they had any love for Islam in and of itself. The uh, Quraysh tried once again to bribe Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to. You know, change course to stop what he was doing. They sent Utbah ibn Walid to talk to him and try to and try to convince him to stop the message. They, you know, he offered him like saying saying that if you're sick, we'll get the best doctor for you. If you're possessed, we'll find someone to remove the jinn from you. And he was basically once again trying to bribe Prophet Muhammad Hassan to stop this. And so, when he did this, Prophet Muhammad Hassan responded with uh, with Surat. Suratul uh, Fusilat, the first five verses, some say the first 13 verses of Suratul uh, Fusilat, and this is how he responded. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Hamim Tanzilum minar rahman rahim Kitabun Fusilat Ayatu Quranan Arabian Likaumi Ya'lamun Bashiran wa Nadhiran Fa'arada Akhtarahum Fahum la yasma'un Waqalu Qulubuna Fi Akinatim Mimma Tad'una Ilayhi Wa Fi Athanina Wafi Athanina Wakuru Wamim Bainina Wabainika Hijabun Fa'amal Inna Amilun. This is our chapter forty one, verses one through five. Translation is Hamim. This is a, this is speaking of the Quran. This is a revelation from the merciful, from the beneficent, the merciful, a book whose verses have been detailed in Arabic Quran for people who know as a giver of good tidings and a warner, but most of them turn away so they do not hear. And they say, Our hearts are within coverings from that to which you invite us to, and in our ears is deafness, and between us and you is a partition. So work, indeed, we are working. 
this response to Utbah ibn Walid was because Utbah had made it clear that the Quraysh are never going to accept what you're doing, Prophet Muhammad. He said, well, he didn't call it Prophet Muhammad. He said, the Quraysh are never going to accept what you're doing. So how about we come to some sort of you know, peaceful conclusion to this thing? You stop what you're doing. We can stop persecuting you and your followers. And this can all come to an end. We're not going to change. And so this was his response to him. But these verses were so profound to Utbah that he left knowing his heart was in a bit of a turmoil. He didn't convert, but his heart was in a turmoil as to what he heard. And so he went back to the to his people and said that there's no way we're ever going to change him. We, after hearing these verses, he was convinced there's no way he's ever, they, were, he, they were ever going to stop Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam by, by, um, by peaceful means, basically. And so there was nothing they could do except to turn up, turn up the uh, persecution. And that is what happened over the next several months. So the Quraysh went through several different methods methods to try to uh, stop Prophet Muhammad They went through all sorts of things. They and, we, and the Quran mentions all of these things that they went through. We're going to go through them one by one so you can see the corresponding verses. And the purpose of me mentioning the Quran in conjunction with the Sita so you can see how the Quran and the Sita are, or the Quran and the life of Prophet Muhammad are intrinsically linked. They're, they're, I won't say they're one and the same, but they are perfectly linked. You can't have one without the other. So it is important to see how these verses play into effect. So we're not just reciting or memorizing verses without knowing that there's a meaning behind them. There's an intent and a purpose behind them also. And while perhaps that purpose may have been directly revealed at that time for a specific reason, Perhaps you know the what they call asbab nuzul, the reason behind re- revelation for these verses may have been in response to certain actions at that time. You will see that even in our time, many of these same things are true. Now we're going to look at some of them now. The first thing they did was call Prophet. One of the first thing I'm not going in order, basically, but one of the things they did with Prophet Muhammad is that they called him a madman. They said he was crazy, and which was what. Utbah ibn Walid alluded to when he said, "If there's a jinn possessing you, you know we can get someone to help you out to get this to straighten this from to straighten this for you." So this he was alluding to the same thing, and Allah responded to this in Surah Al-Qalam, uh, chapter number sixty-eight, in verses uh, one through one through six. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Noon. وَالْقَلَمِ وَمَا يَسْتُرُونَ مَا أَنْتَ بِنِعْمَةِ رَبِّكَ بِمَجْنُونَ وَإِنَّ لَكَ لَأَجْرًا غَيْرَ مَمْنُونَ وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَى خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ فَسَتُبْصِرُ وَيُبْصِرُونَ بِأَيِّكُمُ الْمَفْتُونَ إِنَّ رَبَّكَ هُوَ أَعْلَمُ بِمَنْ ضَلَّ عَنْ سَبِيلِهِ Translation is noon by the pen and what they inscribe. You are not, Prophet Muhammad, or O Muhammad, by the favor of your Lord, a madman. And indeed, for you is a reward uninterrupted, and indeed, you are you have a great moral character. So you will see, and they will see, which of you is afflicted or crazy. Indeed, your Lord is most knowing of who has gone astray from his way, and he is most knowing of the rightly guided. In addition to calling him mad they also called him a sorcerer as Allah says and, and a liar as well in the same in the same verse Allah says in chapter 38 verse number 4 the surah al-sad 
And they wonder that there has come to them a warner from among themselves. And the disbelievers say, this is a magician and a liar. Then they also began to give the prophet not began, they were doing this from the whole time, they gave him ugly looks, like um, horrible looks that were meant to perhaps cast the evil eye on him, or just so a way to to cause even more harm to him emotionally by giving him bad looks. You could say that a bad, you know, a look is, is a simple thing, but remember, the evil eye can be passed on with with bad, with certain looks as well. So don't take it too lightly that just because he was look, they were looking at him, it doesn't mean anything. The law says in, um, also in chapter uh, 6, Number sixty eight, And indeed, those who disbelieve would almost make you slip with their eyes when they hear the message, and they say, Indeed, he is mad. So the same accusation calling him crazy. And then they also, be, they weren't satisfied with just mocking the Prophet, they also began to mock the Qur'an. And they said that the Qur'an and the verses that Prophet Muhammad was bringing were just stuff from the people of old, stuff from the Ahlul Kitab or from, you know, the uh, the the Jews or the, or the Christians or from stuff he heard from somebody who's taught him all this. So they would say something similar to, to this. And Allah quotes them in uh, Surah Al-Qalam also. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم إذا تطلع عليه آياتنا قال أساطير الأولين When our verses are recited to him, they say these are nothing but but tales from tales from old or tales from the former people, meaning the people of the book. And when they would do these things, Allah would bring. Now, before we go on too too much further, just so you can see a reminder of all this, how many of these same accusations that they were putting upon Prophet Muhammad Hassan back then in the Quran are similar things that they say right now. People still come forward with the idea that Prophet Muhammad Hassan was lying or that he was crazy. People don't say, nowadays don't say he was a magician, but they do say that he was lying or that he was crazy or that he was power hungry or he just wanted money. And they will say things like, they say that he got the Qur'an from the Jews and from the Christians of his time. And they mention certain things from the Sita. It's amazing how they don't, they pick and choose what part of the, the parts of the Sita and the Hadith they choose to believe in. The parts of the Hadith that, you know, talk about the Qur'an coming down to him, talk about revelation and, and miracles, they choose to ignore that. But the part of the Qur'an that says that he may have at some point, not Qur'ans, the parts of the Hadith and the Sita that say that Prophet Muhammad Sassam may have at some point in time in his life met with a Christian or met with Jews, they jump on that and they accept that with full with full belief. For instance, the um his meeting with with his wife Khadija's cousin, um, Waraka ibn Nafal. So they jump on that and they believe that part of the hadith. But the part of the hadith that where the parts of the hadith where you know Rasulullah says he, you know, was visited by an angel, they reject that part. Or even the part where he says that he's a prophet, they reject that part. So they pick and choose what parts they want to they want to um believe in. But when these um when the people of the Quraysh would bring up things about Prophet Muhammad so I'm calling him crazy or saying, why does why did Allah send, if you're a prophet, why did he choose you? You're just a regular guy. Why didn't he choose somebody more noble than you? Even though he was from a noble family, they would say, why did he come from a, why didn't, they, why didn't Allah send it to an even more noble family? Why do you, you know, what's so great about you? So 
these same things that they would would uh, accuse Prophet Muhammad Hassan of or say things or say about him, Allah will send down verses showing that the same stuff they said about they say about Prophet Muhammad Hassan during his time, they said about the prophets before him as well. In Surah Al Qamar, chapter fifty four, Allah talks about the people of Thamud and the way they and way they res- responded to their prophet who came to them. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم كذب ثمود بالنذر فقالوا أبشرا منا واحدا نتبعه إنا إذا لفي ضلال وسعور أألقي الذكر عليه من بيننا بل هو كذاب أشير سيعلمون غدا من الكذاب الأشير Translation is the Thamud denied the warning. This is, I believe, um, the Prophet, I believe, was Salih, and said, Is there one human being among us that we would follow? Indeed, we would, we would then be in error and madness. Has a message been sent down upon him from among us? Rather, he is an insolent liar. They will know tomorrow who is the insolent liar. And with uh, this Prophet Salih, Allah sent the she camel as a sign to them. And the people of Thamud, they hamstrung her. They killed the camel and hamstrung her. And the next day, Allah destroyed them. And that's Elijah. But the, the point of that of these verses is to see that that part, they called the people of Saleh, they called him, uh, the people of Thamud, they called their prophet Saleh the same things that they called, that the people of Quraysh were calling Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu They said, why is it sending him this guy? Why is the message coming to this regular guy? Also said they called him a liar. And they also called him a madman. And they said we follow. If we're going to follow him. We'll be the ones who were in error. We'll be the ones who will be crazy to follow him. And so these are the same accusations that they send against Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So they were like I said. They had no no limitations to how far they would go. The Quraysh that is. They mocked the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. They persecuted him and his followers, and they even mocked the Quran. And which is happening in our time even now. Then the uh, they went on to be they went on to go further than that, and then began to talk about began to spread lies about Prophet Muhammad to people who would visit Mecca because the Kaaba was there. It was it was like the main attraction, and it still is, quite frankly. But it was the main attraction at the time, and so when the people come for to visit Kaaba, whether it was for the annual pilgrimage or just for any other reason, to visit the Kaaba or when caravans would come through, the uh, Quraysh, the en- enemies of, of Rasulullah would spread you know, rumors and lies about him amongst the people, amongst people who would come to visit. And so Allah sent down Surat Humaza, talk, talking about people who would spread backbiting lies. And this is, once again, something that we don't have to wait until we don't have to assume that that is only for a certain period of time. This is even for now, when uh, we should be careful of, this, of, of spreading lies and backbiting and slander. As Allah says in his book, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Wailun likulli humazatin lumazah Alladhi jama'a ma'lan wa'addadah Yahsabu anna ma'lahu akhladah Woe to every scorner and mocker who collects wealth and counts it. He thinks that his wealth will make him immortal. No, he will surely be thrown into the crusher or the crushing fire. This was particularly aimed at 
at Abu Jal and Abu Lahab, who were very wealthy and had high position, and they were the primary proponents of saying evil things about Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and backbiting him and slandering him and spreading lies about him. So that was one of the main problems with um, that was that's what was revealed for that. But once again, it's not just for that that time and, and era. This is something that we have even now that we have to be careful of as uh, for right now as Muslims and even a warning to, to non-Muslims as well who do the same thing, uh, spreading lies about Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam or about righteous Muslims as well. And I had one more story of um, persecution. Um, one, of the, one of the Sahabas named Khabab ibn, ibn al-Arat, he was forced to lay down on coals and they put the, uh, the Quraysh put hot, uh, heavy stones on him while he was lying on coals, you know, because he had, had accepted Islam. With all this persecution going on, and the Muslims were somewhat weaker with the departure of a good portion of the number to Abyssinia, their numbers had gotten a little bit weaker. They had gotten even smaller. The Quraysh wanted to put a vise on them and prevent any more migration, prevent them from getting too much bolder. Also wanted to discourage anyone else from even thinking about joining them. And so the persecution heat, you know, heated up and became even stronger. And so to protect his people, Prophet Muhammad suggested or had them be- begin to wor- do their worship more or less in secret um, at a place called Darul Arqam. And this is on Mount Safa. It had them, had them worshiping in secret, but even though they were worshiping in secret, try to protect themselves, eventually, you know, things still got out and there were still conflicts and confrontations between the two groups. Now, this time, you may be wondering, why wouldn't the Muslims fight back? Why didn't they do something? You know, why didn't, you know, we Muslims are no strangers to fighting back by any means. So you may be wondering, why didn't the Muslims fight back? Well, they were a very small number at this time. At this time, the Muslims were probably less than 50 people. There were probably less than 50 Muslims who had, who had accepted Islam openly in Mecca. And you consider Mecca, I don't know how big it was, but even if it was just a medium-sized city of, say, 50,000 people, or even 10,000 people, or even just 5,000 people, which would be a small town by today's standards, you know, that's fairly small. You know, they would still be a, a small minority. 50 people versus 5,000 is really not much. So there's really not much you can do against that. So they... They really couldn't fight against against them, and they had no political power. They had, you know, many of them who had any sort of financial power. Their families had disowned them or abandoned them, and so they w- they really didn't have the ability to fight back. Had they fought back, they would have. Had they fought back, they would have most likely have been wiped out. Allah knows best. So this, and also primarily, the order not come down. the The period of Mecca, uh, this thirteen years in Mecca, was to build a strong core of believers who would then go forward to spread the message beyond Mecca and throughout the entire world. But before they can get to that point, they had to be tested and hardened and their faith had to be had to be confirmed. Not that Allah didn't know their faith because Allah knows knows all. But it is a it was a way of strengthening them and proving to themselves more than anything else that their faith was strong and real and that they couldn't be wavered by small things or by persecution or by some of the greater hardships that will come later on. As bad as these hardships in Mecca were, eventually the Muslims would actually have to go to war against the pagans. And when you do that, now it is life and death. At this point in time, you can say they can just do peaceful resistance and just deal with it and not have to worry. And they hope that people would have mercy on them or, you know, not kill them, just torture them. But once you come into warfare, it's now life and death now. So, they weren't ready for that 
at that they weren't ready for that just yet and the numbers were just too small so the Muslims just couldn't do it just yet with all this however the with all this however there were two important events that happened two important conversions that happened uh, during this increase in persecution in the 6th and 7th year of the message of Islam the first one was by Hamza ibn Abi Talib and he was not Hamza ibn Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib he was a brother of Abi Talib Hamza ibn, ibn Abdul Muttalib he was the Prophet Muhammad's uncle but they were very close to each other in age, in age. even though you know Hamza was his, was the Prophet's uncle they were still very close in age and so they pretty much kind of grew up together remember Prophet Muhammad grew up in in uh, Abu Lahab's household uh, Abu Talib's household and so him and Hamza were very close in age and were very close friends and relatives. And so when they grew as they grew up to they were very close in both relationships and friendliness and they also had, you know, bloody relations as well. One day when Hamza was out hunting, the Prophet he went to the Kaaba to make tawaf, which is uh circumambulation around the Kaaba. And he was going around the Kaaba, and the pagans began to insult him. And so, when the Prophet responded, he didn't respond with an insult himself. He responded with a dua, or with or with Quranic verses. They began to uh, they began to attack, and the pagans began to attack him. And Abu Bakr broke it up. So the Prophet he left from the Kaaba to get away from all the problems and drama that was going on there, and went to Mount Safa to worship Allah there. But Abu Jahl followed him on to Mount Safa. And while the Prophet Muhammad was worshipping at Mount Safa, Abu Jahl came behind him and began to attack him. And there was a woman who was nearby. She saw Abu Jahl attacking the Prophet. And he attacked the Prophet while the Prophet was praying. And so he had no way to defend himself. And so she went and told Hamza, who was just coming back from his hunt. And Hamza had his, his bow. You know, he hunted with bow and arrow. He had his bow over his shoulder when he heard what Abu Jahl was doing to his cousin. Remember, like I said, they were very close to each other, Prophet Muhammad and Hamza. So Hamza ran to where where the attack was going and began to hit Abu Jahl with his bow and and began to attack him and said, You're hitting him because or you're attacking him, talking about Abu Jahl attacking Prophet Muhammad. You're attacking him because of what he believes. I have you know I believe in what he I believe in the same thing as well. And Abu Jahl, you know, he respected Hamza because Hamza was a had a very fierce and strong personality. So he Abu Jahl, you know, respected him and you know, right, rightfully so, and also he did. He was a the statement. Now he didn't want to lose someone of Hamza's stature to Prophet Muhammad's side. So Abu Jahl he apologized and immediately began to try to to smooth things over with Hamza. But Hamza already said it. Now the cat was out the bag. So at first Hamza had said this out of in the heat of anger and you know out out of. Um, you know, just out of impulse, you know, because he saw his cousin and his relation being harmed. And so he yeah, said initially, you know, his his initial statement of belief was more or less just to get at Abu Jahl and get Abu Jahl off his cousin and get back at him. So he had to really ponder about it for a few for a little while afterwards if he knew what he was getting into. He wasn't quite sure if he was ready for this or if he really did, but if he really did believe. But Allah seal you know, confirmed faith in his heart. And Hamza soon, a few days later, became his faith became sincere, and he became a sincere follower. And he wound up making the Hijrah of Prophet Muhammad Sallam, and wound up becoming martyred in the Battle of Ahud, which will come up later, inshallah. So, definitely, his faith was sincere. 
But yes, initially he because he had taken he had done this impulsively and out of anger what he what he saw Abu Jahl doing to Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So Hamza became a very strong ally in the in the ranks of the Muslims. But even greater than that was the conversion and perhaps the most popular conversion of all, the conversion of Omar ibn al-Khattab. He was roughly probably about the 40th person to accept Islam. And this conversion of Omar ibn al-Khattab really elevated the Muslims, uh, their, their stature to, uh, to another level when Omar ibn al-Khattab joined the Muslims uh, and he converted. Now at first, Omar ibn al-Khattab was, amongst all the other pagans, he was, you know, persecuting those people from his, amongst his family who became Muslim or the slaves who were under his control who became Muslim. He was right along with him. He wasn't as bad as attacking the prophet in the precincts of the Kaaba. He wasn't that bad. But the people within his own household, within, within his family, or who, who were under control of his family, yeah, he did persecute them and beat those people who, who became Muslim. There's a report that he had a slave, a slave girl who became Muslim, and he would beat her and beat her and beat her. He only stopped because, as he said, he, only, he was only stopping, not because he took pity on her. He told her this. I'm not stopping because I take pity on you, but because I'm just too tired to beat you anymore. And so he stopped only because of that. So he was involved with the persecution also. But at the same time, he was upset about the, the discord and the... the uh, the tear in the tears and the rips in the family fabric that was happening in Mecca at the time. He was upset about the families fighting against each other and people turning out their own people from the family. And he was really upset about the all the problems that were happening, people leaving Mecca and moving to Abyssinia and all these sort of problems that were going on in Mecca. And he, using his, you know, his logic, he brought it all back down to the source of all this. The source of all these problems was Muhammad. He brought all back to Muhammad, said this is all his fault, this is all him coming up with all these problems. And so the best way to stop all this is to just get rid of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu And this was his plan. And the Quraysh encouraged him to go ahead and just end this whole thing. The Quraysh were pretty much too, af- most of the other Quraysh were too afraid to kill Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu because they didn't want his um, family to, re- to exact retribution against them. But Omar was the type who didn't really care about that sort of thing. Omar, as you'll see, we'll talk about his character in the, in the, later on. His character was similar to Hamza's. Uh, you know, he was not one to back down from a challenge or from a fight. He was very wise now. He wasn't a fool, but he was not one to back down from a fight whatsoever. So, according to the most popular story of his conversion, he took a sword and he went marching through Mecca to go to Prophet Muhammad and kill him and end this whole mess once and for all. As he was going along the way, uh, one of the companions who had become Muslim, whom he didn't know had become Muslim, stopped and asked him, where are you going with your sword, Omar? Because Omar was walking rather, you know, determinedly, and he had a sword in his hand. And if you saw somebody walking down the street right now with a gun in their hand, you asked, uh, man, what are you doing with that gun? Or unless you ran away, but if you knew the person, you asked, what are you doing with that gun? So the same thing, he asked him, what are you doing with that, with that sword, Omar? And Omar said he's going to go and kill Prophet Muhammad, or he didn't call him Prophet Muhammad, but he said, I'm going to kill Muhammad in this fitna, in this in these trials that are happening in Mecca. He said, well, before you go and attack someone else's family, maybe you should go straighten out what's happening in your own household. And he told him that his sister, Fatima ibn al-Khattab, no relation to, no relation to Fatima ibn Muhammad, not the daughter of Prophet Muhammad, but um, Omar's sister, his name, her name was just Fatima ibn al-Khattab. She had become Muslim also, and she had married another Muslim named Sa'id ibn Zaid. 
So he said, why don't you go take care of your own family rather than before you go ahead and try and straighten someone else's family first? And when Omar heard this, that his own sister had become Muslim. Remember, many people didn't know. Many people were still keeping their conversion secret. So everybody didn't know who was open and all. And there were many people were still praying at, or doing their worship at Dada al-Qam. So many people who hid their conversion for, you know, for various reasons. So when Omar heard this, he was really hot and mad and he went straight to his sister's house and he went there and he opened the door and he saw her, his sister and her husband uh, sitting there reading Quran. And even though he didn't know what the Quran was, he, you know, the Quran has a unique, has a unique sound. When he heard them reciting the Quran, he just went off on them and he began to beat them and hit them and just pummel them. And he, Omar was reported to be a pretty big man. And, you know, as people, as time goes on, people tend to get taller. So men, people of our time are generally taller than people, say, 100, 200, 300 years ago and going on back. The, you know, as nutrition gets better, humanity generally typically, typically gets bigger and, of course, sometimes even wider as well. So, but Omar, however, was reported to be over six feet tall, which was tall for people, for, for an Arab at that time. And so he was a pretty big guy. And very sturdy, very strong. He was very young, as as compared to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu He's about, I'm thinking, somewhere between 20 to 15 years younger than Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu So, if Prophet Muhammad was around his late 40s at this time, Omar was probably in his late 20s. So, when he saw this, what was happening? I mean, sorry, when he saw his uh, his sister and her and his brother-in-law reading the Quran, he began to pummel them and beat them, and you know, they couldn't do anything about it. They just had to sit there and, and, and take their licks until his sister just got fed up and said, you're hitting us because of what we believe and go ahead and kill us. And she, and when she said this to him, that kind of shook him out of his, out of his rage. And it made him calm down and he realized what he was doing. He's, you know, it's like, you imagine everyone gets mad at times. And when that temporary moment of madness or anger, I won't say madness, but madness indication, indicates insanity because that madness is more or less rage or or being furious and anger when that anger's you know when it flicked off and it subsided he looked at the carnage he had caused his his sister and his brother-in-law laying down in front of his feet bloody and bruised and everything it it kind of shocked him and like my god i can't believe i did this and it softened his heart and he felt both ashamed and remorseful for what he had just done and so he asked, sister to, he asked his sister to read what she was reading because she was reading from strips, you know, some of the Quran written on paper. He asked to, to read what she was reading, but she refused to let him read until he had cleansed himself. So he went and and um, made wudu at the time. Uh, don't believe all the rules of wudu were, were were revealed at the time. So most likely he probably just did something similar to like a ghusl as of right now, a full bath. He came back and he read Surah Tawha. And we're going to read that right now. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Taha ma anzalna alaykan Qur'ana litashqa illa tadhkiratan liman yakhsha tanzilam mimman khulakun arda wassamawatil ula ar-Rahmanu ala al-Arshi istawa Translation of that is, Taha, have we not sent down to you the Qur'an that you be distressed? But only, we have not sent down to you the Qur'an that you are to be distressed, but only as a reminder for those who fear. 
fear Allah, that is. A revelation from he who created the earth and the highest heavens, the most merciful, above the throne established. When Omar read these verses that convinced him that Islam was a true, these verses touched his heart and he, you know, immediately at that, at that point in time, wanted to become Muslim. And so, still had a sword in hand. He left his sister's house and went hurrying towards Prophet Muhammad Hassan's house. Now, Prophet Muhammad Hassan heard that Omar was on his way with a sword. He thought Omar was coming to his house with a sword for the previous reason, which was to kill him, not to take, you know, to become Muslim. So, Prophet Muhammad Hassan opened the door to meet him and grabbed him by the collar. And, said, and when he came to the door, that is, grabbed Omar by the by the collar of his shirt and said, "Where have you come here for, Omar? What are you here for?" And Omar said, "I came here to take shahada or to bear witness that you are the messenger of Allah." And Omar took shahada and became Muslim. And that was a turning point for for both the Muslims and the Quraysh. For the Muslims, a turning point in that now with Omar, he gave the Muslims courage now that he was there. Now that both Hamza and Omar were both very, very important conversions. But Omar coming along, you know, with his wisdom, his stature, his um, his known, you know, his famous temper and his, his famous, you know, roughness and sternness that helped the Muslims, you know, be encouraged. And we see how, and this is unfortunate, really, we see how rumors sometimes pop up with Muslims today, when people become, we rumors pop, about, pop up about people becoming Muslim. For instance, when Michael Jackson died, there were all these rumors flying around that he was Muslim. And Allah knows best if he was or not. But the conversion, if he was, of Michael Jackson doesn't really, you know, make Islam better. Now, it could be that perhaps it does benefit Islam in some way that perhaps more people may become curious about Islam and read about it. There may be some benefit to it. But you can see how how much we react about, you know, a celebrity becoming Muslim. And many of these stories are not true. I've heard of, you know, rumors about Will Smith being Muslim, about Michael Jackson being Muslim and others. And for the most part, many of them, you know, are not Muslim. Will Smith has confirmed he's not Muslim, as has Michael. And I don't know about Michael Jackson. His brother, Jermaine Jackson, I believe, I'm pretty sure is Muslim, at least as far as I know he is. But, you know, we don't, you know, whether Michael Jackson was Muslim or not doesn't, you know, make a sign more true or not. But the conversion of Omar, it didn't, the Muslims weren't, at this time, weren't happy because it gave their faith legitimacy. It just meant that now they could be less afraid of, of practicing their faith in public. They were more or less grateful for the benefit it would give them and the fact that it gave them strength and courage to, to, procre- to proclaim their Islam. However, when people today's, in today's world, when Muslims get all wrapped up about some celebrity who's supposed to be Muslim, and whether he is or whether he or she is or is not, you know, it doesn't legitimize Islam one iota. Islam is true with or without them. The most you can say is that perhaps through their celebrity, maybe through their recognition, maybe they may become good spokesmen for Muslims. And sometimes, you know, maybe they're not. I mean, I'm not gonna say any names, but some people who became Muslim and some things they've done even as Muslims are not really great things. You know, so just because someone becomes Muslim, you know, we shouldn't be so not I'm talking about um, a celebrity becomes Muslim. You know they have to actually, you know, I want to make sure I say the right thing because anyone becoming Muslim, even if they're not good character, it is still a good thing. The point is, however, we should not take their conversion as legitimacy for Islam. Islam is true with or without them, and once they become Muslim, 
You know, there are brothers or sisters in faith, but they are no greater or better than the least of us, you know, in any way. And only Allah truly knows who is the highest in his eyes or who is the most noble in, in his eyes, you know, in the face of Allah. So we have to be careful about becoming too wrapped up in celebrity, whether, you know, someone becomes Muslim or not. But the point is, going back to the point of Omar becoming Muslim and Hamza, that gave the Muslims courage and strength. Now, we couldn't, we could see the benefit of a modern day politician who had, you know, some real, you know, power and authority becoming Muslim. We can see the benefit in that because perhaps they can, you know, bring about reform that may make it easier for for Muslims or Islam in in this country or any other country you may happen to be in. We can see the benefit in that matter. And in that case, you know, that is a good something something good, it's something that should be, you know, hoped for, prayed for. You know, we should make dua that influential non Muslims become Muslim as far as possible. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with making dua that Barack Obama becomes Muslim. I mean, despite his name, he has shown every indication that he's not Muslim. But how beneficial would it be for us as Muslims if the President of the United States was Muslim as well? I mean, a true practicing Muslim, not just a name, not just a name of a Muslim, but actually be a true practicing Muslim. So I don't see anything wrong with making dua that, you know, powerful people or people who have some sort of authority become Muslim. Prophet Muhammad made dua that Abu Jahl, who was enemy of Islam, and Omar would become Muslim. But Omar is the one who became Muslim and not Abu Jahl. So if it's okay to make dua for a person who was outright, you know, persecuting and killing Muslims, it should be okay to also make dua for for you know leaders of nations to become Muslim in the hope that inshallah not that we give legitimacy to Islam, but for their own sake as well, so they won't you know, suffer the punishment of Allah in the next life, but also that perhaps they may, you know, bring some benefit to us in this world that may make it easier to practice Islam in this life. And Allah knows best. So in that case, you know, it is okay to make dua for for the leaders of nations to become Muslim or for Allah to guide them. Because I have any any good any Muslim is good who has good any good practicing Muslim, you know, is beneficial to the Muslim Ummah in some way or another. But a good practicing leader who is also Muslim is extremely good, extremely beneficial. Any good leader, Muslim or non-Muslim, whether a good, effective, competent leader, Muslim or non-Muslim, is beneficial to all people. But a good, competent leader who is also Muslim is even better. So there's nothing wrong with making dua for for uh, leaders of nations to become Muslim or for, and for Allah to guide them. So now that these two very prominent convergence took place, the Quraysh, you know, they were like, okay, we're we're pretty much we keep, we're pretty much not going to be able to stop this guy. Speaking of Prophet Muhammad, they said we can't stop him. You know, people Omar becoming Muslim was a big blow to them because Omar was, you know, like I said once, his conversion brought a lot of status and courage to the Muslims. And now many of the Muslims who used to hide their Islam or pray in secret were now bold and coming out and praying in public because Omar did this himself. He would go and pray at the Kaaba and he would dare people to attack him. And he would dare people to attack them, to attack him and say, if you want to attack me, bring it on. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Okay? He didn't say bring it on. So, but he would, he would dare people or uh, threaten people who, who even thought about attacking him. And so that courage also filtered on to the other Muslims, and they also became more bold in expressing their Islam and practicing Islam in public and going through the Kaaba and praying in public. And all these things just brought home to the Quraysh that, you know, this was not going to be a quick and easy thing. 
and they were going to have to resort to even further methods to to stop the Muslims. And so now all of the the uh, tribes of Quraysh, they decided to, they had tried pretty much everything they could. They tried persecution, they tried murder, they tried expulsion. Well, they didn't really try expulsion. They tried expulsion for some people. They tried um, mockery, they tried lying and slander. They've done everything. They put out the entire bag of tricks at the Muslims and it still didn't stop Islam from growing. It was growing slowly. It was only 40 to 50 people at this time. But still, you know, that's a small group of of, of strong and believing Muslims is a, is a frightening thing for the forces of evil. You know, so have, you can just have a few small, a small group of practicing, believing, competent, you know, striving Muslims, and that will throw fear into the enemies of Islam. You know, just so, even if they have all sorts of weapons and things that can wipe out entire nations, and just a small group of Muslims will have, you know, disbelievers and enemies of Allah shaking in their boots, and so it causes them to sometimes overreact, or I would say, you know, overreach in their attempts to snuff out Islam. And so the the Quraysh they went to one more thing that they had tried. They now tried basically economic sanctions against the Muslims. You know, they they now resorted to a boycott of the two clans that were protecting Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That was Banu Hashim and Banu Abdul Muttalib. They initiated a boycott against them. And then also all the other Muslims, any other Muslim who who was uh, openly practicing Islam or who they knew were Muslim, they also boycott, boycotted uh, that individual or that group of people as well. And this was a, a collaboration between all of the the clans of the Quraysh, with the exception, of course, of Hashim and Mutalib. All the other clans, they collaborated against in this boycott, these economic sanctions against the Muslims, in which they were going to completely shut out any form of help to the Muslims whatsoever, and really to Banu Hashim and Banu Abdul Mutalib. Now, the terms of the boycott... This happened. The boycott, by the way, happened in the seventh year, the mission of Islam. The boycott basically would be that none of the clans would trade or do any sort of selling or do give any food to Banu Hashim or Banu, or Banu Muttalib. They were really trying to starve them out, so there would be no trade of no food. There would be no trading, period, so they couldn't earn money on their own. There would be no trading of food, so they couldn't buy food from the different clans. And anyone who came into Mecca with food or with goods to trade, they wouldn't let them trade with them either. They forced all of anyone who was married to the sons or daughters of Banu Hashim and Banu Muttalib to divorce them. We mentioned about how Abu Lahab, he had his sons divorce uh, the, the Prophet's daughters. And they said that, and also no social contact as well. So they, they people who were participating in the boycott they were not to speak or have any kind of friendly relations with anybody who was uh, being affected, but who was under the, the terms of the boycott, which is basically Banu Hashim and all the other Muslims. Uh, Banu, Banu Hashim and Banu Mutalib had not become Muslim as of yet. So, but they were forced to go through this this uh, boycott because they were the ones protecting Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and because they wouldn't turn him turn him over. You know, they were the boycott was primarily aimed at them. It wasn't really aimed at the forty or so Muslims. It was primarily aimed aimed at the supporters 
of Prophet Muhammad Hassan, which was his own family. And so they initiated this boycott against them, and the boycott lasted for, for three years, from the seventh year of the Message of Islam through the tenth year. Abu Talib, he was an old man at this time. He was in his mid-70s or so. He, had his, he was still the patriarch of the family, though. So he moved his family into a valley, and they, this valley is called Shib Abu Talib, or the Valley of Abu Talib. He moved them away from, uh, into the outskirts of, of Mecca, into this valley where his, his people could be away from the, in the middle of the city and away from the persecution of the uh, Quraysh. Because now this boycott was on, it was something that couldn't just be, they couldn't stay in the midst of people who were boycotting them. And this also gave them the opportunity to try and get food some other way if they couldn't get it through the, directly through the city precincts of, of Mecca. The terms of the boycott were written down on paper. They didn't have paper at the time, but on parchment. They were written down on parchment, and they were nailed to the Kaaba. When the Quraysh would put something on the Kaaba, that's like, as you can sort of like, you know, writing it in stone. This made something, you know, really indemnified, really solemn. It's like a solemn pact that no one is going to break this treaty or break this agreement or break this contract because now it's on the Kaaba. This is so. This was taken as a sign of of absolution, a sign of of con- of concrete of concrete affirmation that they're going to follow through with this boycott. So all the clans they signed on to the boycott and they signed on to the terms of it and the 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 document in of itself was nailed to the pre to the Kaaba to the Kaaba. And so this was made public. First of all the Kaaba is a public space and also like I said the solemnity of of putting the this document on a holy structure just made it all the more strong and all the more forceful. And the uh, the Quraysh, they told the they basically made it so that the only way the boycott would be lifted would be if Banu Hashim turned over Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi to the Quraysh so they could do with, with him what they pleased, which was of course to kill him. And they would not be they would not release the boycott or end the boycott until that happened. The only one about Hashim who escaped from the boycott was Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab, he was not trying to hear any of that family tie stuff. He was not caring about family and bloodlines. He broke with his family, Abu Hashim, and wouldn't go to the to the valley and left them completely and went to Quraysh. And so he was not part. He was not under the restrictions of the boycott. So he was basically went went on through with his life as normal, as nothing had ever happened. So he was so. You can see how backwards he is. He even violated his own his own local customs of stand by your family and blood is thicker than water in order to defy Islam. That's how deep his hatred for Islam was that he would even he would even turn against his own family, which was something that was unheard of in um in the time of the of the of the of the um, at this time. You know, you don't turn against your family, you stick by your family. I mean I'm not because people persecute their own family. That's one thing, but you're not going to join in a boycott against your family. That was something that was unheard of. But this gave this gave strength and gave confirmation to the Quraysh because they were like, "Look, his own uncle is leaving him. His own his own uncle is not following him. His own uncle doesn't doesn't um, agree with what he says. So what can we say? Uh, who's this, what's to say about him if his own uncle does not support him?" And so the Quraysh used this as a justification for the persecution against the Muslims. And as he mentioned, this happened in the seventh year and lasted for about three years until the tenth year of 
of the Hijrah. And inshallah, next week we will talk about the ramifications of that boycott and how it ended and what brought, it, brought, it, brought about its end. But we're going to stop here, inshallah, for now. And we're going to use this time if anyone has any questions about anything we've spoken about so far and within the CEDO about you know, past classes or anything that happens with any of the companions. Wa'alaikum. Doesn't seem to be any questions. If anyone is, all right. Well, just uh, spend we'll spend the last few minutes talking about the ramifications of the of the boycott against the Muslims against Banu Hashim and Banu Mutalib. After the the three years, we'll go into the details of how it ended in the next class. It's going to take me a little bit longer to explain how it ended. But after the the boycott ended, because of the three now the three years that the that the Muslims in the boycott, they're living in this valley and they had to it was really difficult for them to find any food. And there's stories and Alana's knows best how true they are of people eating leaves off of trees and you know, eating you know, just doing whatever they could to to survive because they had no way of of getting food on their own. They weren't allowed to trade with anyone else in the, in their community, and people who came into Mecca weren't allowed to trade with them either. And so that was the main problem. The main uh, hurt that uh, that Banu Hashim, Banu Mutalib, and the other Muslims felt were the pain of starvation or near starvation, and they suffered through this for three years, barely you know living on barely subsistence living and when it ended after three years and like I said we'll talk about how it ended in the next class inshallah when it ended after three years the results of the of the intensity of the boycott weakened both Abu Talib and Khadijah the prophet's the prophet's wife radiallahu anha because they were basically went for, they went for three years living on less than enough food to live off of. You know, they were already elderly as it was. They wound up suffering the most and they wound up dying in the tenth year, which is called the year of sorrow. And when Abu Talib died and Khadijah died, that ended a lot of the support that Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi brought up um had had enjoyed up until this time. So we can see how but with the ending of this support now, Prophet Muhammad now began to look outside of Mecca to continue the the uh, spread of Islam. He began to look for a place he can migrate to or move his followers outside of Mecca. And so if you look at it from a long, you know, even though this took about 6 years to complete, when you look about it in a long in a long range view, you see how the Quraysh actually 
hurt themselves by doing this boycott. Were it not for the boycott, I'm just kidding, well, they were, Abu Talib and Khadija would have died anyway when it was time, but the boycott or the lack of food and lack of, of uh, proper nutrition during the boycott, you know, was a re, was the primary cause for their death other than the fact that, you know, Allah had decreed for them to die at that time. But by doing this boycott and by the Prophet, and by the Prophet losing his support, he now was forced to look for someplace outside of Mecca and which eventually led to him making the Hijrah to Medina, even though it will happen several years later. But that began the end of the uh, the Meccan period right there with the beginning with this boycott. And that really, and when the Muslims moved to Medina, that changed things around completely. And now the Muslims were now able to defend themselves and even eventually attack the, the Meccans as themselves. So this boycott, while six years beforehand, the Quraysh would have no idea that it would lead to basically their own defeat. It would be the beginning of the end of their of their of their own mission of trying to stop Islam. And they inadvertently made Islam stronger and wound up wound up being the um the cause of their own defeat. But we'll get into that more, but you don't see that you really can see this after some time. And you see how the uh, how things progress after the boycott. And Khadija, when she died, was 65 years old, and Abu Talib was 78 years old, and both of those ages are pretty were pretty advanced for Arabs at the time. People at that time didn't really live that long. Uh, if you can look at, I looked at the, um, in the CIA fact book, I found out that in some parts of Africa, West Africa, the average lifespan is 59 years old. You know, for average human being, is 59 years old. So, and that. That was from 2010, 2011. So you can imagine how short the lifespan must have been for people living 1,400 years before that in the middle of the desert. Most likely, many people probably didn't live beyond 40 years. So to have these two individuals, Khadija and Abu Talib, live to such advanced ages, and even Prophet Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad himself, who lived to, um, 60, to 63 years old, you know, this was really unusual for people to live that long but it was just the mercy of Allah and it was all part of Allah's plan for that to happen okay uh, if nobody has any questions we're going to have to end it here um, give you another minute or so if you have questions and then I will take my leave uh, you're welcome alhamdulillah alright we're going to end it here then inshallah Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadun la ilaha ila anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh